All right, we are live with memory tracks number 28. And this is going to be a really exciting one, at least for me personally. Um, so I have my friend Jacob Clark say hello. Introduce hello. yourself. I'm yeah. Jacob Clark. <laughs> <laughs> I, always, I always debate like that introduction. I, I feel like I still have not quite, I'm 28 episodes in, and I still have not quite mastered the introduction of like, the cadence of what's the phrase it's all very repeatable how do you say it how do you make sure that they feel comfortable to introduce so eventually i'll get that right and nail right, it right. appreciate the patience for the listeners and for the guests uh as they tolerate my uh you know learning through that but well, i think you're doing very well <laughs> i appreciate it um and let me explain a little bit some context for why this one is really important to me uh and I've used this expression with a couple of guests, but I will take this moment to like gush a little bit oh about, no. <laughs> about the guest and why I am so excited. But, um, you know, I met, I met you Jacob through, um, working at Bizarre Voice back in the day. And it's funny, you know, I, a lot of guests, there's like probably four or five buckets you could put various guests into. There's one, the complete strangers, um, Airbnb or like friends of friends, uh, to, you know, family friends or college friends, three, I guess would be college friends and then four coworker friends. And then I guess maybe five like music friends and stuff. And you kind of blur the lines between a lot of those, but I met you at Bizarre Voice. You were on the design team when I was on the marketing team. And, um, I always like really gravitated towards these like weirdo designers like between you and Chris <laughs> and Michael and Aaron. You almost did uh, seem Justin. like one of the designers that you yeah, hung out I mean, with us like, all the well, time. You know, I grew up in high school. I was an art kid and I did all the art stuff. I letter jacketed in art. And so like, I think I have this like secret innate th- desire. Did you really letter in art? I did, yeah. That's, that's my awesome. sophomore year, it was that's like awesome. most people didn't letter until junior year but i was just i was a master acrylic painter for a really while. <laughs> yeah but i got burned out my senior uh, you year have not shared that part of yeah, yourself no, with me I, I need to see some of that yeah i mean looking back on it it's not very good but um it uh i, I really gravitated towards that world and i used to draw cartoons and like get paid to kids in like third grade like hey draw me the looney tunes space jam character and <laughs> nice. it's like cool i'll charge you five bucks for that so i always <laughs> nice. had a business mind and sense but An enterprising <laughs> young man but uh you know i i i love exploring like creativity and meeting you um you know you really like you live and die by your creativity and like it's very important to you to be creative in your life through your work and through your life and through your family and the obligations that you have through all three aspects of that, as well as to yourself, the fourth obligation of keeping yourself happy. And, um, you know, it's funny, like I, uh, my, I guess it was seventh grade. I started taking guitar lessons. I did about two and a half years of guitar and loved guitar and, you know, nerded out on music through high school and had terrible taste and didn't know any better. But, you know, f- I did good taste because I fell in love with Jimi Hendrix and did all that shit and, um, you know, thought I was like the cool kid on the block for a little bit. I think there. high school's pretty hit or miss for all <laughs> yeah. of us. I've, I definitely have my embarrassing record. We all did. Um, and then I got to college and kind of stopped playing music. Still loved music, but stopped playing it myself and went a couple years without playing. And then, um, 
I guess like two years after graduate, excuse me, after graduating, um, a good friend of mine, Bryant, who hasn't been on yet, but will be on eventually, uh, was like, hey, I've got some songs that I've written. Um, I'd love to like play with somebody. I know you used to play guitar. Would you be willing to like play bass and see if we could do anything with it? I was like, yeah, that could be fun. I know I'm not really a good guitarist anymore, so I guess I could probably learn how to play bass, and then we could do this. And I mentioned it to you, and you were like, I knew that you played bass, um, and not just played bass, but were like an exceptional bass player. Um, And, you know, that's not exactly common to me, like bass players that actually care about playing bass and playing it well versus most bass players that are just like, like me, like we used to play guitar, but we weren't good enough. So I guess we'll just relegate to playing bass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you like had a real ear for it, a real talent for it and respect for it. And so I spent probably a good six months, whether you realize it or not, but just like talking to you about it, learning from you about it, learning how to care, who to listen for, how to have the touch, how to hear it, how to feel it. And, you know, spent a lot of time uh, actually do va- really? uh, actually do not vaguely I actually remember that well it was it was actually fun to be able to geek out some it was awesome man and it means it really does mean a lot to me because you taught me a lot and you mentored me a lot through that uh, and playing with Bryant doing that and learning how to play bass and doing it with the respect for what bass actually can be which uh, listeners are probably rolling their eyes because most oh, people totally. don't understand her as oh, like totally. bass players <laughs> And fucking Paul Rudd set us all back 10 years with the slap of the bass, like, bullshit, which oh, is totally. just a, every two-year cycle that someone brings that up. I was actually having a conversation. Uh, I went to a, a Bizarre Voice, actually, because uh, I still do some contract work with yeah. them. And uh, they have, like, their big corporate all-hands party. <laughs> and, you know, they they hired that uh, band, what are they called? The Spasmatics. Oh, God, yeah. And uh, Which is the corporate chain, by the way. There's yeah, yeah, the Spasmatics corp- in, like, every metropolitan city in the U.S. And but. if you're big enough, maybe you have four of them, right? <laughs> yeah. In Dallas or something. <laughs> but uh, it was funny because uh, Spasmatics play 80s pop, like, top 40 stuff. Yeah. You know, which we all know is heavily, like, keyboard Right, centric, but they don't have a keyboard player ever. Right, so they played it. <laughs> the like, tracks this coming from. Yeah, and uh, I was having a talk to a non-musician coworker. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was saying it probably would make a lot more sense for them not to have a bass player. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're going to play along with tracks, because truth is, most people don't really pay attention to the bass bass's role. Yeah, as long uh, as it's on time, then it, it's sure. Bad, yeah. Like. Uh, you know, like Unless you're D'Angelo or Pino Palladino and you're behind the beat and you can't replicate that. But Exactly. But <laughs> it's like most, you know, not to sound a certain way, but most like girls you'll date, like uh, they won't know which one's the bass player. They're all <laughs> they're all guitars up there, right? It's like one thing that endears me to my wife. She re- really understands what a bass is and a role. It's like, okay, I didn't know like, that about it. I, didn't, I never realized that she appreciated and recognizes the, the bass skill. Maybe appreciating is overselling it. <laughs> I think, I, Kathy, this is your invitation to come on this right. podcast. And and maybe she does appreciate it, straight. but the real thing is that she knows what it is. Yeah. She's always dating she musicians. She you're very exactly you're very skilled at what you do. Yeah, but it it was in truth like I look back to it and it, I have very fond memories of I mean I was like a kid in a candy shop talking to you about bass and like <laughs> I was like sitting there thinking about. You know, I must, 
I must learn to not play use a pick when I play bass. It has to be fingers. And then like I learned how to do that. And then as soon as I was like, oh yeah, I know how to play bass with fingers and I'll never use a pick. And you were like, you know what? I'm thinking about recording this new song with my band using a pick. And I was like, Jacob, you've betrayed me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember my whole picture for dicks phase. <laughs> I mean, but the truth is, it's like, it's really all about the song and what it sounds like totally. in, and yeah. we all yeah. have songs that we love yeah. with and without a pick on the bass. And again, there's probably going to be a bunch of eye rolling Yeah, no, about but talking about the pick with the no, bass. No, but it, I mean, Sir like Paul some plays people with the pick, so. it. He does, and it always be respected as a result. Uh, and currently, the band that I'm playing with now, I play with exclusively a pick, so I've, uh, I've adopted. Yeah, um, when I saw y'all play, I was actually <laughs> super impressed that you were playing a bass six with, with, with a pick. Yeah, it's been fun. But uh, moral of the story is, uh, this uh, I'm really excited for this episode because I feel like our relationship is based on a variety of factors, music being one of them, playing music being another one of them, and connecting with music and it's a result to our life, but also like we're close enough to where I know you very well, and I, I hope that you feel like the same way, and a big thing with what I'm trying to do with this podcast and with these episodes is go beyond the music and more about the connection, um, and I think we've had a lot of these conversations before in the past, and we could probably have you know, 50 songs we could each talk about with each other that mean something to us, that we have interesting stories to share, and so, uh, you know, I'm sure maybe it was a challenge for you to think through which three, uh, and hopefully this isn't the only three that we ever talk about, but... Sure, I, um, I had a pretty sizable playlist <laughs> going for a while. That's great. And uh, whittling them down. I want to say the highest number I got to was roughly, it's probably a pretty good question to ask people, like how many, how many uh, you know, uh, memory track tracks do you have in your playlist? Um probably about 18 or yeah. 20 that yeah. I had to whittle it down from. And like one thing I definitely did, didn't want to do, um, was try to show off my taste or like yeah. be Mr. Musician guy. Right. And, um, and really focus on like stuff that actually does sort of take me to another place, take yeah. me back. Um, which is actually a really weird feeling when you think about it. It is weird, it. right? And I, I tried to really narrow it down by, uh, you know, when I would listen to them and listen through the playlist, the ones that were maybe the most intense, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, not necessarily my my favorite music, you know. It, I don't know that all these songs would be, probably one of them would be on a playlist that I would make myself to actually enjoy while I'm working or yeah but but it seems like you know the the point is about uh, the memories and the connections and totally no I think I think you you got that in our communication leading up to this um, you understood it well and that is why I'm excited about it and you know to continue the introduction around you know you mentoring me in a lot of ways of learning to play bass and being creative again musically and doing that and and pushing myself to be like you know i just want to do this it doesn't matter if it means anything to anybody else other than myself and you encouraged that in me and i did that with my first band and then the second band um was when you asked me to play with you and you know you 
or the bass player that mentored me, and uh, this is the, the the extenuation of what I think is probably the longest intro to any one of these episodes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but this goes back to the gushing uh, phrase. Um, but yeah, you know, you asked me to play bass for you for some songs that you had written, and um, that was a huge compliment. Um, not in the sense of. Uh, that you thought that I necessarily could or couldn't play it, but just that you trusted me to, to do it and emote it in a way that did it justice. Um, and it meant a lot to me when you asked me to do that. And it still means a lot to me. And I just wanted to take that moment, this moment, to thank you for that because uh, you it really meant a lot for you to ask me to play bass with you and to do that. And when we played together in Far Far Future, it was a huge highlight for me creatively and in my life of just like you know playing bass in bands in your mid to late 20s who the fuck cares yeah at the same time like i'm so glad we did that man absolutely and we ended up doing it what close to two years yeah and we did it really fucking well it was a lot of fun and i will always look back on that as a really important time in my life and I'm really grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to do that. And for anyone listening that's like, okay, I'm tired of hearing and talking about this. Like, Jacob is uh, one of the most creative talents that I've ever met. And I really encourage you to listen to anything that he's ever been a part of. Um, awesome. Thank you very much. And, you know, I, hopefully people will take that that challenge because I think you you've got a lot of good good talent within yourself but anyways i don't like to feel too <laughs> uncomfortable uh, with my bragging about how talented <laughs> i think you are uh, which is very genuine and very real and i do mean that when i say it um but you have captured the essence of what i'm trying to do here and so i think there's nothing left to do but to for the rest of the songs that you picked and that you sent which yeah yeah it's going to be awesome. I, I'm excited um, for it. Um, are we going to play the first one? Or? Yeah, let's do the first one. Awesome. So the first one uh, comes from an artist called Jimmy Swaggart. And this track is called It's Beginning to Rain by Jimmy Swaggart. Bye, Frank. It's beginning to rain Hear the voice of my father He's saying Whosoever will Come drink of this water It's to pour sons and your daughters If you're thirsty and dry look up to the sky It's beginning to rain The turtle dove It's singing Sweet song of morning trees 
trees turn their silver cups to the sky. The silent clouds above are beginning together. This barren land is thirsty, Lord. So am I. It's beginning to rain. Hear the voice of my father. He's saying, Whosoever come drink of my wonder. Well, he's promised for his spirit on your sons and your daughters. You're thirsty and dry. It's beginning to rain At the first drop of rain Throw open the windows Call the children together Throw at the door Yes, Lord, we will When the rains of the Spirit are falling Fill every vessel He who drinks his fill It's beginning to rain Hear the words of my father He said, whosoever Come drink of my water He's promised to pour sons and your daughters If you're thirsty and dry look up to the sky It's beginning to rain If you're thirsty and dry look up to the sky If you're thirsty and dry look up to the sky. One more time. Look up to the sky. It's beginning to rain. Praise the Lord.
So that was Jimmy Swagger, It's Beginning to Rain, which, for the record, will not appear on the Memory Tracks Spotify playlist because it is not available for streaming on Spotify. It's such a shame. There, There <laughs> is one version on Spotify, and it stinks. Uh, it's it's, it's so, awful. Okay. It's like recorded in the 80s or something. <laughs> well, the real treat is the YouTube link that you sent me to listen to it. Um, is It's... Uh, it really encompasses the full song, and like sure. I, I took a note as we finished that the closing scene is like um, I guess giant gymnasium full of um, believers that has a sign hanging over, very much in the fashion of George Bush mission accomplished. Um, only it says, uh, "Welcome to Camp Meaning." Camp Meaning. Meaning. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, which, yeah. Well, well, hey, what a, what an introduction for this song. I yeah, so sure. obviously I, I have I've never heard the song before. Um, the context is Christian gospel singer. Sure, have you heard of Jimmy Swaggart at all? I have not. You have not um, heard of Jimmy Swaggart, but I'm very familiar with your background in um, sure. Christian music, and sure. so I I feel like anything that I could say or add about this song wouldn't do it any justice to what you're going to explain so sure. i'm gonna let you just run with it well f- well first off let's uh cut off the assumption that i'm actually personally involved in christian music because i mean i'm not a christian music singer or anything right like no, that. no no of course uh but uh that's sort of how uh i got introduced to music because uh, my dad he he played around in a few like bands in high school, like nothing real serious. He was mainly a vocalist. He did play some guitar. He wasn't super accomplished at the guitar, but yeah. uh, he was really um, deeply into the British Invasion kind of stuff. And uh, that's something I didn't really get to enjoy that much until later, like teenage years, if, save for the Beatles, because he, he just kind of kept the Beatles around. Um, he was, you know, your typical baby boomer Beatle fanatic, right? Uh, to a degree, um, albeit he he only really showed us the the Beatles like uh, pre psychedelia kind of stuff. So, um, which is always interesting to me is like when you it's like most people meet the Beatles, which it's an sh- album, sh- sure, <laughs> uh, yeah. meet the Beatles through grandparents. Who like yeah? Once Sergeant Pepper's comes out, they're like, "They're the Beatles, right?" Oh, man. Exactly. Good stuff. <laughs> but you're like, no, actually, this is this is the really good stuff. Yeah, this is. I mean, it's funny because uh, it, I mean, I actually remember hearing Strawberry Fields over the radio on a local radio show. <laughs> this guy I love named Dave Adcock, rest in peace. Tunes till two in Jackson, Mississippi. Growing up, I'm I'm from Mississippi. Um, Anyway, he uh, and he actually used my band when I was thirteen. I recorded my first music, and uh, he would play us on the radio, even yeah. though he only played oldies music, because we were obsessed with like British invasion stuff, right. and that's kind of what we sounded like. Um, but anyway, I actually remember one Sunday during his radio show, him playing Strawberry Fields, and uh, I'm embarrassed to say I think I was probably eleven. I had no idea that was the Beatles. Because um, I had only yeah, heard you grew like, up on the like yeah, mop top, on the, the mop yeah. top and the suits. I had no idea there was like a psychedelic era. 
Oh, and they met Ravi Shankar. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so whenever he, um, at the end, said, oh, that was the Beatles, I was like, clearly that was a mistake. That that can't be the Beatles. Uh, anyway, uh, kind of got off the subject. Jimmy Swagger. Um, later on, my, my father was... Uh, uh, became a born again Christian and started singing uh like Christian music like gospel music and yeah. stuff at churches and such and uh that happened uh after my sister was born uh my oldest sibling and before my brother was born so this was already happening when when I was born and such right uh and my dad always sang it's beginning to rain Every single performance, didn't matter what church you went to, that was in the set list. It's beginning to rain. And people flipped out over it. They loved this song. It's a beautiful song. It, it really is. It is, but I mean, from the perspective of a kid who's like, you know, dad is up there singing in church and like, you know, you're bored. You're in church. You're a little kid. Right. You know, right. that's just the way that when it is. When is this going to end? When is this going to end? And on the, on top of that, uh, I had heard it four million times. <laughs> like I've heard this song a lot, right. uh, a lot <laughs> during my childhood before the age of ten. Like I heard it probably more than any other song <laughs> I had ever heard. And um, the other thing I really like about this song, uh, and this is kind of nerdy. Um, my dad was, you know, traveling around singing and stuff, but sometimes when he would go to sing at churches, there wouldn't be um, appropriate equipment, you know, for him to sing and stuff. Right, right. Like the little old country church wouldn't have like a PA system. Right, or, there's like no monitor. He's just, yeah. Sure. And after one of his performances, this man comes up from the audience and says, and again, this was before I was born. This this happened before I was born. Uh it's probably like mid to late seventies. Uh, and this man told my dad, like, uh, God told me to buy you a, a sound system that you can take with you wherever you go so that your voice can be heard no matter where you go. And, uh, he had this, you know, I just remember this big gaudy silver knobbed, uh, PV mixer amp <laughs> And two speakers that it came with that this guy bought for him. And uh, it was funny when I started learning how to play music, my, my older brother and I, um, you know, with the year that it was and how old we were, we were, uh, I was, the first songs I learned were off of Bleach, uh, yeah. Nirvana's Bleach. Yeah. And uh, I remember my dad saying, um, I can tell that you boys have an innate talent and ear for music. Um, but I'm not comfortable with you using my sound system because it was bought specifically hmm. for Christian music. Mm -hmm. And we, that's not what we were playing. So I think for the first maybe two years of playing music, which I bought my first bass when I was around 12 years old. Yeah. Um, after um, kind of a failing stint at saxophone, which was my first choice. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Else started with saxophone. Who? David you know, Bowie. David Bowie. I know, right? 
who we share a mutual adoration for. Exactly. As um, everyone should. But I mean, actually, later when I became a Bowie fanatic, uh, I loved that about him. Yeah. Except, you know, David Bowie actually kept playing saxophone and right. some of his early <laughs> stuff before he could, I guess, afford, afford an actual a, amazing yeah. like, sax jazz <laughs> players. Like, right. he, he played the parts. He played it himself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I actually have one song and one band I ever played in recorded where I played sax. Really? Yeah, I, I do. And I'm a terrible saxophone player, but I, I just sort of picked out a part just so I could record saxophone. I remember, like, you know, in, in fifth grade elementary school in Texas, like, the whole thing was, you know, you're getting ready to go to sixth grade where there's, you could become part of band. Sure. And a cool could, kid. But you have to try out for, like, different instruments and you got to submit your form with what instruments and you pick like your top three and for me my number one was percussion but it required like two years of piano lessons which i didn't have so i disqualified for that and my number two was saxophone i was like, really i want to do saxophone did you play saxophone i did the, i think i i think i did the tryout or maybe i never made it to the trial i can't remember to be honest uh but no i didn't qualify for band and i was an art kid so nice well <laughs> well hey I, I won the sixth grade rodeo houston livestock and rodeo show i got second place so i'll Dang. take that <laughs> job big, big any, top peewee over here <laughs> anyways so you it actually your, probably you saved you from years of pain with yeah. the scarlet letter of being a band nerd right uh, yeah. i actually was eventually kicked out of band <laughs> really for saxophone for saxophone oh uh, no um, what had happened because was... Because you like the blues? Or? I didn't like the blues. Actually, coming from <laughs> Mississippi, it took me until I was over the age of 25 moving to Austin to start really appreciating oh, Mississippi no. blues. But, you know, it's because I was yeah, from there yeah, and it was shoved down my throat. You're indie kid, yeah. yeah and I was, right. a, I was a little snotty indie kid. It's probably respectable as a result. Of, exactly. Um, but, no, I was kicked out because... Um, I learned how to read music. However, I was very slow, very slow. Yeah, I could not just sight read. Nobody's going to put music in front of you, and then you're going to. And I'm going to just play it. Um, So I would read the music enough to just memorize the parts at home, and then play them for memory or kind of by ear. Yeah. At uh, at band, and then somehow just by watching me and my mannerisms, or I don't know exactly, but the teachers just sort of figured it out. Yeah, and was like, eh, yeah, this is not your thing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, actually, then is when I started playing bass. I was like, well, I love music. I want to keep playing music. What's the other sort of organization I can be in? Well, something that's not involved in school, like yeah. being a rock band. Yeah. So, um, and your dad was like. That's cool, but not on my sound system. But not on my sound system. Or not on the Lord's sound system. But it's just funny because, you know, my, my dad was a great guy. He actually ended up buying a lot of sound equipment and reading tons of books on running sound. And he would tour with us so and run really, sound. He's really into supporting you. He was that. really into it. I mean, he gave in after a while. And his main thing, I mean, for the longest time in our house, we weren't really allowed to listen to anything other than like gospel music. Right. Um, save for like the Beatles and some occasional like just like poppy early to mid 60s kind of mamas and papas yeah the mamas and papas and Herman's Hermits and the monkeys and like yeah. uh, like the very earliest Rolling Stones you right. know before the lyrics Out were so head, overtly yeah. yeah 
none of the actual like sexually charged or obvious drugs music. But uh, even during that period, um, I had an aunt who um, would make me mixtapes that said children's praise music. And it would have like the kinks or the doors on it or something. Yeah. So, um, so definitely, um, as you know, just from being personal friends and having been in a band together, uh, my music has always been really informed by that era. Yeah. Um, and that's really why, I mean, I li- very literally in the eighties was raised on, um, British invasion stuff, 60 stuff. And, uh, it wasn't until like my twenties where I actually listened to eighties music at yeah. all and was able to kind of discover some of that stuff. Um, but anyway, Jimmy Swagger, uh, back to Jim, old Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of interesting that my dad chose that song. Um, this performance in general, uh, in particular that we just heard is probably the most well-known performance, uh, of that song. And what's interesting, um, and what I didn't tell you, is Jimmy Swagger was a TV evangelist. Uh, In like the late 70s, 80s? Yeah, yep. And um, he was actually Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin. Uh, Like Great Balls of Fire, Jerry. Great Balls of Fire, Sun Records. And in fact, uh, Sun Records uh, approached Jimmy Swagger and asked him to be on Sun Records. Yeah. Uh, after, this was after, like, Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Roy so Orbison and Johnny Cash. Sun Records is already huge. Sun Records yeah. is always huge. They're the already ticket. huge. Yeah. And uh, even though they're not particularly um, in the gospel, uh, it was still selling really, really well yeah. at the time. So they wanted to have a gospel section you know, a gospel branch. So they need the showcase artist that's going to represent that. Yeah. And it was more or less like, uh, at the time, Jimmy Swagger was dirt poor. Um, I was reading about it before I came. He actually made what was the equivalent of about two, $200 a week, uh, and had like a few kids and a wife and all that kind of stuff and doing tent revivals to make the ends meet. And his main thing was it's like like, some true detective shit. Totally. (laughs) His his main thing was tent preaching and stuff like that. And, uh, he had recently gotten on like a radio show. He had like radio. He wasn't a TV evangelist yet. And, uh, at the time, Jerry Lee Lewis was making, uh, $20,000 a week. And that was back then, $20,000 yeah. a week. That was a, a ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, Sun Records throws down that carrot. I mean, I don't know what the exact offer was. but Right. I but mean, it was something lucrative. Of it like, was something lucrative. You're making $200 a week and we could... And actually he turned it down. Uh, he did not Why? ever... Because he said he was supposed to be a preacher. Hmm. Not a musician. And so that convicted in his faith that like he needed to do that. Yeah. Exactly. So he he went on uh, to do his radio show, which got more and more popular, and ended up becoming one of the first like really big TV evangelists. Um, what makes this performance particularly interesting, and especially since it seems to be the the popular performance of this, this particular performance was in 1989. Yeah. Uh, 
But in 1988, he found himself in the middle of a big scandal when uh, he was caught um, with a prostitute. Mm. So, kind of a interesting... A contradictory of what he represented. Exactly. Um, but, you know, for some reason, this particular performance was still it very... still took off, yeah. Still took off, and... Uh, uh, and then he was, I think it was 91, caught again with a with a prostitute. And he was outed by another TV evangelist that they were just in competition. It was just like business. Uh, yeah. He was outed because uh, Jimmy had previously outed that guy, that TV evangelist, for having an affair. So it was just kind of like this. Mm, yeah, it's like, a, it's like a rat beef only with uh, TV. TV evangelical Christians. It, it is. It's really kind of weird. Like you're stepping on my turf or whatever, yeah. and like I'm gonna take you down. So it should be like a very principle based argument. Sure. Is actually an economical thing of like, how can I best you in this situation? Sure, to basically reason. make you obsolete, so you know people start looking at my TV show yeah. more or whatever. Um, but you know, I never really liked this song as a kid. It it kind of drove me crazy. Uh, you know, he looks a little bit like George Jones, which I thought was annoying. And on top of that, he sings like the Cowardly Lion. <laughs> so it was like, he really does. It was funny he, he we was were listening to him, were imitating his voice, and it was. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very cowardly lion, but. Actually, um, so you don't know this, the, the first Far Far Future record uh, that I did, like the majority of it, yeah. um, on my own when I went back to Jackson for a few months, Jackson, Mississippi, I moved back home for about 18 very long months and um, recorded the majority of that record and had about three or four other friends kind of contribute show up, contribute yeah. on the record. Uh, I actually... I um, decided to cut the record short. It was only eight songs. I wanted to go a little bit further, but I had decided to move back to Austin, so I just cut it short and yeah. went ahead and pressed it. Uh, I had actually planned on covering that song and huh. uh, putting it uh, on the record, cool. which I still really would like to do. Yeah. I still would really like to record the song. That's awesome. Uh, because if you go back and listen to it, it's you know, as an angsty kid later remembering this being into nirvana and mud honey all this it was just an annoying song but yeah. like becoming an adult and like uh you know really falling in love with other people that aren't so far off the map like roy right. orbison you know is right. one of my biggest heroes right and it's like jimmy swaggart's very croonery he's pain, yeah. yeah he's very croonery so, yeah. and it's very like melodramatic right uh it's kind of in the same vein and there's something I really like about it. I mean, that's kind of the problem of like secular music versus religious music of like, there's, you know, musical studious people. Well, if you're not secular, it's just, it's messed, right? Like, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you can't be talented if, if you're singing for your religion. Sure. Because of the constraints that that implies upon your music, so you kind of just get erased from all critical reception. But that's what I've always found very interesting about you and your tastes and what you bring to playing music with you and being creative is uh, you can kind of see that. And it was something that really made our band unique, where actually everybody in our band had 
previously played in, <laughs> in church bands. I know. It's kind of hilarious. It's kind of um, disturbing even talking about it right now. It was true. And, um, and in fact, to make matters worse, uh, two of them continued to, like, two yeah, of them did yeah. play at churches right. uh, when. And me now, I'm not like a religious person or right. anything like that. And it was just, it was just kind of funny. But I think that I was naturally drawn to people like that. I yeah. think it's kind of interesting that we have that in common. The path, yeah. Um, I don't know. It, you know, it, it's it's just a it's a very specific way to be brought up, and yeah. just like anything else, um, there's a comfort in. Uh, having some commonality right. with people. And right. it was an interesting thing to have a band full of people yeah, like no, that. I mean, it, it was great. Um, it was good. We'll, we might mention that more later on throughout this episode, but uh, I'll preface this for, for our listeners. With, so far, this is probably the longest segment of just the first song, which I think is a testament to our friendship and what's in store for the remainder of this episode and not to put any pressure on the rest of the songs, but sure. Um, and one of the things for guests that haven't been on, um, you know, I keep track of the time, but I never encourage that for the guests. And so I just want it to feel very natural, very conversational. I'm not paying Uh, attention. So, uh, and, uh, bear with us because I think this is, this is really good. I'm enjoying it. Uh, but I will transition us up to the uh, to the next song. Let's do it. I think uh, I can't wait to hear what else what else comes. But for for the next track, it is a uh, track by a band called. Which, by the way, I, I've never heard of the song. Never heard of this band. Oh, really? And um, it's one of those things. I typically will do research on songs before uh, the episodes, but I felt close enough with you from a relationship perspective that it was like, oh, I didn't need to really do much research sure. because we could riff enough off on what we know about each other. And this is one where it's like, I really don't have much going on other than the fact that it's co-written by Paul Simon. Spoiler alert. Oh shit. Yeah. I you know what? That. I have, I had no idea. You didn't know that? <laughs> I had no idea, which is funny because I mean, obviously I have a pulse. So Paul Simon is one of my yeah. favorite yeah, I mean, songwriters. I mean, um, yeah. Well, yeah. he, so, yeah. They, I had no idea, that's funny. Uh, this band opened for Simon and Garfunkel, I guess, in the late 80s or whenever. In the late 80s? Or maybe early 90s, I don't know. But whenever they were around. Uh, they were around in the 60s. It's a band called The Circle, spelled C-Y-R-K-L-E. Yep. Uh, and the song is called Red Rubber Ball. Here we go. <laughs> Be alright. Yeah, the worst is over now. 
That was Red Rubber Ball by The Circle. <laughs> That's kind of a funny song. Uh, it is funny. It is a funny song. It's not... You know, I was actually really surprised to hear that Paul Simon co-wrote the song because uh, regardless of the fact that I put it on my three-song list, I don't feel like it's necessarily a great song. Uh, it's mediocre at best. It's mediocre at best. In fact, it kind of reminds me of something I might have written... Uh, but this is this is why yeah, as a teenager when you, when you sent these songs over, I was really excited for the episode because you know the the pressure of being somebody that I have a musical connection to is like oh to your point earlier, you want to show off of like how smart of a musician you are and whatnot, but you've captured you've been uh, what's the word uh, you know unrestrained in the sense of sure you. You've picked songs that clearly you have a connection to, and you're not trying to represent yourself as some like master musician with great taste. It's like these are songs <laughs> that you have. Yeah, like obviously these. Jacob, are... by the way, for the record, ha- does have great taste. <laughs> <laughs> not that I you can. You. Not that you can tell so far. <laughs> but right no, now, it's, it's like, like I. I really love when I get the head scratcher requests of like I don't know the song, I don't know this band. There's ten other artists that I would have assumed you would have picked beforehand. Sure, but. That's why I know that there's going to be a really good story behind it, and I, I can't wait to hear it. I so mean, it would have been really easy for me to pick David Bowie or Lou Reed or, you yeah, know, Pavement or yeah. whoever. Um, but these are tied to specific memories, and uh, this one in particular, um, I don't know how many listeners have had this particular thing happen to them, um, but one odd sensation in life, I think is if you move very briefly to a town at a young age and the the move is brief. Yeah. Like you go there, you leave. I'm you sure take a chance. It doesn't work the way you thought it would. Or, I mean, as a very young person, like, for instance... Uh, uh, okay. This is like, like childhood. This is childhood. Okay. So... Uh, for this era of my life, uh, this is actually a 60s band. And in, in fact, uh, some of you may remember in the late 90s, uh, a box set coming out, uh, which ended up being very successful, called Nuggets. And they did one for America, and they did one for Britain. And they were basically either one-hit wonders or like unsigned, unheard-of 60s bands, like garage stuff. And uh, this shows up on there. Um, but... When I was a kid, uh, halfway through the third grade, my folks decided to move to Fort Smith, Arkansas, as if Jackson, Mississippi wasn't bad enough. Um, (laughs) We decided to uh, go to something just a little bit worse. uh, And we stayed there for a very brief time. So I went there mid-third grade, uh, we moved back the summer before fifth grade. So I was there like for a grade and a half. And it was a very pivotal time for me. Um, things were sort of normal and fine uh, in my hometown. And I don't know if it was because I was a new kid or what, or the certain age that I was in third grade. 
But when we landed in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and uh, I started going to elementary school there, I sort of figured out that I was a weird kid. Like, it was the first time, like, I think most of us art kids and music kids have that age where we're like, fuck, I'm the weird kid. <laughs> and that was, that was my, that was my age. And, um, what the reason why this song is tied in is there was a really good oldies station, uh, not to be confused with classic rock. It's, it's funny. It seems like there's a very, like a pretty thin line between the two of them, but like anything, it seems like anything 1966 and before is sort of oldies and after right. it's classic rock. Yeah. By the time you get to like psychedelia and then like phase out of that, it's sort of classic rock. Yeah. Um, then it gets into like the stadium shit and all that, but like all the mop top and like all the early boy bands and all the like girl groups, like, uh, like Phil Spector stuff, like yeah. all that era is like what my parents listened to. And we had this great radio station and this song came on nearly every morning on the way to school. My mom driving my brother and I to school. And, um, the funny thing is on the chorus, this is kind of dumb. All right. So on the chorus, uh, the very last line, it, it kind of takes a really big breath to sing the whole thing. And at the time, it was too low in register for my prepubescent voice to sing uh, the last two uh, last two words, rubber ball. And my mother, obviously being a woman, like, and her register was kind of high. It was always low for her, too. So uh, my brother and I and my mom would laugh hysterically, uh, taking turns trying to sing the last line in the chorus. Because uh, by the time the word ball came, we were all like, ball. Because it was like, it's like really breathy. Yeah, yeah it was like really breathy. And we were like trying to sing it low. And we were running out of breath because the line is kind of long. We were like, ball. And like uh, one of my first things uh, when I chose a song, I was like, I really want to make Harrison try to sing the last song. <laughs> But uh, I did that today. It's really not hard for like an adult male <laughs> yeah, to do. Adult male, yeah. Like our lungs are bigger, and right. like we can sing lower. It's yeah. a, it actually would be it's super just, super dumb. Except that I would like to embarrass you. But other than that, there'd be no real physical challenge to <laughs> doing that. Um, but what was interesting about this point? Um, it's not just the trips to school with my mother that come rushing back. It's the awkwardness of figuring out that I was going to be a weird kid. Yeah. Um, I remember getting to that school, and for whatever reason, I mean, Arkansas is still the South, uh, albeit instead of rednecks, they kind of have hillbillies more yeah, than they're rednecks. Yeah, they're in that weird in-between because I don't think they it's, actually seceded from the Union, right? I actually don't know. I assume I that they remember, did. But that's kind of the whole thing of the South is it's like, did you secede or not? If you secede, oh, you're the South. If you didn't, then you're the North, assumed. But there's that like weird dotted line view of the people that were kind of in the border of that that like just weren't important enough to actually have to pick. Yeah, they're so not they defaulted. As, they're not and I feel as, like Arkansas is one of those. It, it very well could but be because it's not as be like deep South I'm, as like... 
Alabama, Mississippi, right. Florida, you would think it would be right. a relatively easy transition. It's like Missouri is a good example of that, where it's like very backwards, racist. I mean, not all everybody, obviously. I mean, but, yeah, I would say that's uh, fairly accurate. They, but at the same time, like they weren't important enough at the time of the Civil War to pick a side, so they just sure. kind of, like went with the economy and the the leader, which well, was what. Well, well, <laughs> actually, what was interesting, at least about Fort Smith, because I didn't. Um, you know, I haven't been all over Arkansas. Yeah. You know, like later on touring and stuff with bands, I go through Little Rock. And right. like, of course, you know, especially coming from Jackson, Mississippi, in comparison, that seems like a decent yeah. city. <laughs> but I mean, like most anything does. Um, <laughs> but uh, we actually didn't like have black people. That was one of the yeah. first things I remembered. We had a lot of Vietnamese people, but yeah. not black people. Like a right. lot of Vietnamese yeah. people went there during Vietnam and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, in fourth grade, I remember uh, a pair of black brothers moving the town and, mm-hmm. um, and we became really good friends. And I remember actually being a little bit relieved because Mississippi is like tons and tons of blacks and like uh, was used to schools being very, very mixed. Right. And um, I was actually a little bit relieved to have these brothers there. Uh, I remember their names were Sean and Pierre. Mm-hmm. And what was funny is um, they told me they were from Paris. And it sounded reasonable because to me they didn't have very very much of what I would consider like a regular southern like uh, black dialect. Right. Uh, and... Uh, I learned later that there's a Paris, Arkansas, and I think it was probably just because there weren't that many other black people there. But anyway, uh, so my only real friends uh, besides Sean and Pierre, especially in third grade before that happened, was uh, two little kids, Brian and this guy named Craig. And they kind of helped me figure out that I was going to be a weird kid because all the kids would pretty much play soccer in the middle and in the middle of the schoolyard and I was very nervous about trying new things and failing in front of people. And Craig and Brian and I would walk around the entire property just in a circle and talk the entire, um, the entire recess every day. And, um, you know, Brian, what's the nerd on the Simpsons? Like the, I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons. Yeah. Again, so, like, I, I, my Simpsons references Yeah, yeah. So, the he kind of looked like that kid. Like, he was extremely nerdy. Like, the Coke bottle glasses, quintessential, yeah. like, all like a forever cowlick in the back. And, like, uh, and then Craig was really odd. He, um, looking back, I think that he probably was an actual albino. Like, I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I've never met one prior, yeah. but um, I think he was. And uh, he collected uh, Venus flytraps. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> <laughs> he was just like really <laughs> just kind of odd. And uh, anyway, so for whatever reason, um, that song just kind of takes me back to that point. Um, I remember going to school and being a nobody and there being outside, there was this outdoor basketball court and, uh, I would listen to my Walkman and my tapes and all the girls would be on the basketball court. And there was a, like a 
total like ghetto blaster out there with a uh, vanilla ice tape. And I remember them always dancing to it during recess <laughs> yeah. to vanilla ice. And, uh, I would just always listen to my, uh, my Walkman and imagine myself being in the middle of that court in the middle of all the girls and singing whatever song was on my Walkman and like everyone just being amazed at my voice and talent. And <laughs> I know this is completely and it ridiculous. it was Red Rubber Ball. It wasn't Red Rubber Ball, but it was Red Rubber Ball era. But anyway, always at the end, there was always, because we were religious and evangelical, yeah. there was always some sort of like miracle at the yeah. end of my like fantasy. Yeah. And it would be that, the song is ending and I literally float in the air and ascend into heaven and like all these girls and are worshiping so, me. It's so visual. <laughs> yes. You're like, I know this could happen if I just think hard enough about it. But but for some reason when I hear red rubber ball like vanilla ice, the girls <laughs> like ascending to heaven, Craig oh. the albino that loves <laughs> Venus flytraps, like uh, it all just comes rushing back to me uh, and uh i'm not sure if it's comfortable or not but no, it gets a reaction it's so it. it's so awkward like it's just awkward i love it i love it and i especially love that it's a great transition to our our last song which both of these previous two songs i would actually i would take a bet that like the majority of anyone who's listening to this right now has probably never heard of the first two songs or at least, maybe they've heard of the artists, but not the specific ones. I don't know. Sure. Maybe, I mean, outside of your family and, and friends, immediate friends that you'll recommend to listen to this. So they're they're excluded. But um, Outside of my family and other mouth-breathing rednecks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But <laughs> We don't think of you as that. But <laughs> obviously, the, uh, the last song is from a band that we all know. However... It's a very interesting choice for song for this band. So without further ado, I will introduce the final song for your three. It's from the amazing Beatles. And the song is called Real Love. Here we go. See 
So that was real love by the Beatles, which uh, I don't know. I, I didn't. I actually did not know this until I looked it up when you sent it to me. But technically, the last song credited to the Beatles as a group came out as like a the anthology, which was like a greatest hits essentially compilation records of the Beatles in two thousand. And it was a track from the anthology, so it's technically the last song credited to the Beatles. It's I think it's originally into John Lennon song, right? But then was re-recorded with a lot of overdubs from the surviving members, um, late '90s, early 2000s, uh, and appears on the anthology record. But uh, pretty fucking surprising to pick. A Beatles song that is the last song that's like essentially not truly a Beatles song, but is a Beatles sure. song in the sense of when you decide to make that statement of like this is the last Beatles song, <laughs> <laughs> like the pressure to yeah, Paul that's and all, that's Ringo and George, a, a who was alive at the time, um, that's a lot of pressure to be like this is the last statement, particularly for it to be a, a John song for a band that was so divided upon later years of how people get credited towards what goes on. Sure. It's great. And uh, I think uh, a fascinatingly appropriate song for you to close on. So I really wrestled with whether or not to choose a Beatles song. Yeah. Because it's such... No, well, you sent this to me and you were like, ha, 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 you know, emoji, rolling eyes, emo- whatever it took to do that. And you were like, I interpret it as a self-conscious selection it was absolutely a self-conscious Which selection it was hard to choose you you should i'm i'm really glad you picked it because i could tell that you were doubting yourself and i'm glad that you picked it because clearly you picked it with a reason and you were willing to take that risk so i can't it, wait to hear about it. it it is a bit of a risk and it's definitely sort of the heaviest story um but to that point like uh i kind of like and I, and I think this exercise, like this podcast is good for this. Um, I like doing things to make myself uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, in fact, like uh, um, to just sort of derail for a second, um, I learned a lot from the Transformer Lou Reed record. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of a game changing record for me uh, because some of the lyrics were so strange and not in a psychedelic way. They were just odd things to say on in in a song yeah uh, almost kind of like weird out of context conversation that you wouldn't imagine being in a song and like after i heard that i started becoming more comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable and mm. for a long time it was like a a songwriting exercise of mine to act at least have one lyric that i was completely and utterly uncomfortable with saying in front of people right uh, if anything, to elicit a response for myself, yeah, uh, and to make sure that it was an authentic feeling at the time, 
And if anything, uh, you know, the, the feeling of discomfort, if it's there, it's definitely authentic and in your face. Um, so in choosing this song, I kind of decided to go, uh, the same route. Um, and for those of you that don't know, I may be wrong. You know how years tend to bleed together as you start to age. Of course. Um, I actually want to say this was mid nineties, uh, maybe even 94 or 95. Um, it's marked by the year that I spent some time living in patient in a behavioral hospital. Um, I don't know that we've ever talked about this before. Um, but in, in ninth grade, I spent some time living in, in a, um, mental facility in Mississippi. And, uh, the thing that ties this to that was um, before the anthology, and it and it wasn't a it wasn't a compilation or a best of really. The anthology was essentially a film, a three part film that was put on television. And what a lot of people that are just even a smidge younger than me don't realize is that. There was a point in the mid 80s to maybe early 90s, and maybe this is just my perception, you know, from where I was from and the age that I was, but I never heard anyone my age ever talk of the Beatles, ever. And uh, it was very much a, a common theme in my house, you know, regardless of the gospel music. My parents. Uh, my dad in particular n- never let go of his love for the Beatles. And it was sort of a commonality that we had. Um, I even remember uh, at one point I scored a vintage revolver t-shirt that was later burned by an ex-girlfriend. But, uh, <laughs> but I used actually to, physically burned. It was physically burned, unfortunately. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a prized possession, even though... it had a nosebleed stain on it from when I got punched in the face (laughs) once, but I still had it and wore it very proudly because I love the artwork on that album. And I love that album. Uh, period. It was a great, it was that perfect middle ground for the Beatles between, uh, you know, being mop topped and cute and playing live. And I believe it was their first uh, record that they didn't tour behind. Um, maybe they did, but I think, I I know they toured behind rubber soul, but I want to say they didn't think you're right. Actually, I think it it had tomorrow never knows on there, which was the first song. You can't replicate that. You can't replicate that. It was the first song with a drum loop ever. Yeah. By the way. And it was, and also you have tax man, which was the first song with backwards guitar. Right. And it was the first time where they had like, you know, they were hanging out with Bob Dylan and they started having like spiritual I know, like, content. The Tour, it was like post Epstein. Yes. Death. Yes. And that's when they really were like, we're not going to, we're going to ride on a bus, but we're not going to like play songs. So, and that's post oh, post Epstein. And that's yeah, and, why yeah. that thing was a giant yeah. flop is because Epstein wasn't there to right. kind of keep them grounded. Keep them but, yeah. um, anyway, so, 
I have always wrestled with um, uh, with depression yeah. uh, for a long, long time. For as long as I remember, I remember being a little boy and describing to my parents that I thought I physically had heart problems. Yeah. And it was actually just anxiety right. and depression just in the it's pit like of my stomach. acting to an actual... Exactly. Feeling that you had inside. Yeah. And in this particular time in life, um, when the anthology came out, I had been looking forward to it for months and months. I heard it teased. Uh, I want to say it was in Guitar Player and Bass Player Magazine. I remember Bass Player Magazine came out and the cover had Paul with a sandy gray mullet and some really bad vest some, on and like a five string bass or something. Some and, shitty ass. Yeah. Like sector bass. Like, car. yeah. Like <laughs> poofy sleeves with like confetti pattern on his oh, shirt. Man, it's like some really bad taste. It was really fucking awful. Um, but I he remember, was, by the way, for the record, the best beetle, the best beetle who is, are you asking me who is? No, we don't need to debate this. In the oh, podcast, are you, are you saying Paul, Paul was the Paul best? Paul was the best people. I I agree with you. We won't, we won't debate. Good. Now, yeah, we don't I, I probably them. just lost about fifty people just oh, but, just saying you know Paul's what? the best. Those people, they're wrong. So. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> Sorry, uh, no, actually, I love you too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love all of them, but yeah, Paul's my favorite. No, they uh, really are all great. Um, so including our, Pete Best, including. And Brian Epstein and, and George Brian Mountain, Epstein. George Martin. George Martin. Did I say George <laughs> Mountain? I think I might have. Uh, anyway, so um, I knew that the anthology was coming out, uh, but what I didn't know was that I was about to be admitted into a mental hospital, and um, I went to a checkup to my psychiatrist, and. I didn't even get a chance to go home and pack. It was, uh, you're How going. How old were you? I was in ninth grade. Ninth grade. So that'd be what, like 14, 15? Uh, I was actually always kind of a year young for my okay. class. I was, a, I was a summer kid, so I think I was 13. So I think you're five in kindergarten, so first grade, one plus five, six. Okay, yeah, that's about right. 14. 13. I think I was actually 13 at the beginning of ninth grade okay. at least. Um, so I had to go right away to the hospital. Yeah. And um, this was kind of all that was on my mind. at the. I mean, it obviously wasn't all on my mind. But as far as the things that I loved and care, cared about that were my hobbies, that were a good diversion from depression or yeah. any sort of problems I was dealing with, the Beatles were huge on my list. It was right before I had either just started playing music or it was right before I started playing music. Yeah. So I really wasn't as much of a musician. You're not you're not in tune with this. Sorry. Uh, you're not in tune with the, the passion of what ultimately becomes a driving force for your life you're still discovering that and it's interrupted by this very important event and what you're experiencing and having to deal with and have no choice but to deal with. Exactly. So, um, right away I get carted in and, uh, they take my shoelaces 
and uh, give me a suit to wear made out of paper. Um, and I was, you know, I was put in the facility, and I remember I wasn't allowed to see my brother because he was too young. He had to be at least eighteen, and my brother and I were super, super close, and we had been sort of anticipating the Beatles anthology together and being able to watch it. And um, I remember talking to the nurses at the hospital. There was a there was a break room in the middle of... And your brother's older. My brother's older. Okay. My brother's uh, just under two years older. Um, there was a break room. It's basically the, the center of the hospital section that we were at. There was a nurse's section, and this will become important later, uh, that is surrounded in glass. is kind of an octagon, and... Um, there was uh, there were four different halls kind of growing off that glass nurses station, yeah. and um, anyway, I would walk up the hall towards the nurses station uh, every few days and kind of remind them of the anthology that was coming up and that it was extremely important because the TV was always sort of crowded by the stronger kids, right? The rougher kids, they sort of controlled the TV. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the time I was very sort of meek and not outspoken, uh, or, um, you know, I just didn't defend myself very well. And then I remember the day, um, the anthology came on and I went to that room to watch it and I was bullied out of it by a group of boys uh, and they turned it on a different channel. And I remember being so sad about it and going back to my room. And uh, all the while, my grandmother was at home taping it for me on her VCR. I had no idea. And I got to enjoy it and own it for years and watched it. Just, I can't even tell you how many times I watched it with my brother after I finally got out of the hospital. Um but uh, another really weird thing that I should mention about this hospital stay um, is uh, I had what I call a lost night. It's one day in my whole life that I lost and that I'll never get back. What do you mean? Uh, there's one time in my life, one day in my whole life, that I was completely so drugged that I was unaware of what was going on. And I don't remember exactly what happened. I mean, much more so than any sort of extracurricular drugs or alcohol I may have had later on in life. Um, there was this one evening, uh, it was fairly typical in the, in the hospital to go to the nurse's station, which was, again, in the center of these four halls in this kind of octagon glass room. And all the patients would line up there uh, in the mornings and the evenings and just hold their hands out and receive a cocktail of medicine and a, and a glass of water. And you would, you would take your medicine and 
it was fairly common not to even know what you were taking. Right. And, and the medicine would sort of change over time. Like they would just try different shit out on you to see how they behaved or what worked or, yeah. and, uh, later on I, I came to sort of figure out through research. It was sort of a experimental time and that sort of, uh, medicine. But, uh, this one particular night at the hospital, um, Paul McCartney was the last thing I remember being able to see with 100%, well, not 100%, with any amount of sanity. Before you checked out as a result of what you were forced to take. What I was forced to take. Um, so I, I'll tell you this, as someone who later experimented with LSD right. um, in my younger years, obviously older than that point, I have never hallucinated once in my life like I hallucinated on this day. Hmm. Um, and I can say with no exaggeration that basically what happened was I took this medication and the next thing I remember is being on my belly in the hall and yelling, what was I given? What was I given? And the floor was waving around like water, like waves mm -hmm. in water. And this is the only time where a hallucination was like, this was physically happening. Yeah, you were actually witnessing. I was actually person. witnessing the floor waving like water, or it looked kind of like... And it wasn't, it wasn't a choice or an endeavor that you like willingly opted into. You no, were, it was not. You were being forced to it per the diagnosis that the state had given you. Exactly. Um, um, I was diagnosed at the time with being bipolar, which I, I learned later was not true. Yeah. I actually am not bipolar that I know of. Yeah. Uh, I have other issues, but it was bipolar is not one of them, but that's what I was being treated for at the right. time. And um, so I was given this medication, um, and I end up on my belly in the hall screaming or something. And then I, re I remember not being able to walk because I kept tripping over the waves that were on yeah. the ground. It was kind of reminiscent of someone was like waving a sheet and right. you kind of watch the, the wave kind of ripple down and make its way down the sheet. It was sort of like that. I remember a couple of male nurses taking me back to my room and handing me one of my very few personal possessions in the hospital, which I was allowed to have, which was a Beatles calendar. And, um, I had just missed the anthology and I had this Beatles calendar. Uh, and this particular month was a photo of Paul McCartney. And, you know, I hear a lot of people, tell stories I, I i'm somewhat reserved like hesitant to tell the story because i hear people talk about being on acid and mm -hmm. like i think they kind of overblow the visuals that mm -hmm. they that they see because i've done that later on in life and i never saw anything quite like what you experienced in that that night exactly that was much more intense but i remember paul's face actually kind of melting down the page and mm -hmm and letters falling down the page and falling off the page onto the floor. And um, 
the next thing I know is I actually wake up in a different room that's padded and paper clothes. And uh, the next day I go around asking people like, because I thought it was a dream. Did yeah. I behave erratically the day before? Did I be, did I behave strangely last night or what happened? Well, you have that self-doubt of like, well, this is in my head because I'm in an institution where people are sure. telling me that I have issues that are internalized and I don't know what the statement of truth is to rationalize it. Exactly. So it made it extremely confusing, especially for, you know, a kid of 13 or 14 years old. Um, I mean, yeah, that's an, that's an intense amount of pressure to put on. It's a lot of pressure. Has very little experience to actually make a decision for themselves. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, a kid and I'm in the deep South uh, where, you know, Mental issues are very taboo. Right. In fact, I helped my grandmother in her 90s get on antidepressants the first time in her life, mm. and she got some relief before mm-hmm. she passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I figured out later in life that um, mental issues ran through my family. Yeah. I, I was probably the first to ever sort of deal with Actually them acknowledge it head and, on, and, acknowledge it, give welcome, it a name. Welcome help. Yeah. Welcome help eventually have like no shame about it and just sort of deal with it head on. And, um, anyway, but at that time I didn't have the luxury of knowing very much about it. And, you know, I honestly really didn't know if I was losing my mind or if that was like a medicine that I was given or, I mean, you're in the care of doctors and you kind of assume, especially at the uh, young age, that they all have your best interest or, right. and are making the best choices. So, um, I, you know, I didn't know whether it was the medicine or me for a long time, but uh, I've been me for a quite, quite a while now, and I know that I was given something. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know what it was, but I sort of refer to that as my lost night yeah. um, because I really don't know exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, all that sort of heavy or whatnot. But when I got out, I was able to see the anthology and it was super inspiring and great. And uh, it was interesting. It was an interesting time because all of my peers were all of a sudden super aware of the Beatles. Yeah. And, and now I think it's really the resurgence period. Yeah. It was very much a resurgence of the Beatles in the nineties. And I think it's really hard for people to imagine, especially, so I'm 35, especially anyone that came of age after the anthology happened. It it actually was very pivotal. Yeah. Well, uh, it brought this sixties revival back. You think about the nineties and it's like, it's all you get never mind in 91 92 and everything is built around the context of Kurt Cobain in his suicide and so much of that is testament to that but Kurt he loved the Beatles and of course he did and then you get the anthology in the late 90s and 90s is like a yeah I mean like there's a, an identity crisis where it's like we thought we had something, and now the cultural figures are not here. 
because of our lack of attention to mental illness to your point and yeah. um there's a there's an absence and people are stretching and they go back to what made sense and the Beals will always make sense in a way sure not that other people won't but um you really connected with that at that time and it became a big moment for that it it did um it did become a big moment and uh you know it's funny picking that as a song but I, you know everything i picked was pretty much high school or before mm-hmm. um it's very formative years especially mentally right uh those are very very important years yeah and um so for me at least as an adult looking back those are the ones that hit the hardest yeah as far as like going down memory lane i had a good many you know from my 20s and early 30s in my list but the the stuff that really put a knot in my throat was the earlier stuff um you know no matter that it's not the best song in the world red rubber ball or even (laughs) (laughs) i mean even the name alone i mean you don't really have like a whole lot of hope that it's going to blow your mind or anything like that um don't get me wrong it's i mean it's fine and serviceable pop enjoyable song i I mean i think it's good on those terms but um anyways well, you know, it's it's interesting because um, we're close. We share a friendship, and uh, we've had a lot of good, intense conversations. And I look forward to the songs that you didn't pick and why you debated adding them and then not picking, and we'll have that off, off this episode. Uh, but, you know, I mean, thinking about this through you, I have a very close bond to you at the same time. I also know that you have a very close bond to your brother who's also very musical and, you know, I would love to bring him on as well. Oh, and, I think that would be great. And hear his stories too um, because I, I'm always, you know, it, it is interesting to like think through, I always hear guests that come on and they're like, oh, well, here's my three songs that I picked and my wife or my girlfriend or my brother or my sister or my mom or my dad would never have expected that I would have picked these or that and then I would have picked these and that based on what I know about them but I love your uh, uh, just bravery in bringing these three songs to us and talking about them very openly and honestly and letting them represent you and then everybody else can listen to it and take it for what it's worth and learn from it and I can't wait to hear what people react to that. And, uh, and then also the people that you're close with and have a similar connection with, such as your brother, um, can take a different path through that, sure. that journey as well. So, Yeah, I yeah. definitely don't think he would be surprised. Yeah. And because uh, I, I think he probably, you know, we're only two years apart. I'm sure he yeah. shares some of the same memories. He's like, damn it, why'd you pick that song? <laughs> exactly, now I can't pick it. Uh, I hope way, he wants to come on. I would love to I, I would on. love for him to. I would, I would love, uh, I have no idea what he would pick. I don't you know, know. And I don't know yeah. the stance that he would take, whether it would be, uh, you know, painting a picture of his personality with music and yeah. picking those things that 
are meaningful to him right. now that paint the picture, complete picture now, right. or those things that are a little bit more like a, an embarrassing scrapbook, which yeah. is kind of uh, the route I chose the for this time. Took. Yeah, but, I mean that being said, like I, uh, I don't, I don't have an agenda for. I mean, I mean, I have preferences, of course, but like. I want it to be about the guest and I want the guest to be able to feel like they can bring whatever they want to the table. Sure. And let's go from there. And every episode is going to hopefully be different and people will take different interpretations of the prompt and do what they want or what they feel like they need to do at the time that they're asked to come on. And uh, I really appreciate that you took it the way that you did. Sure. This was great. I really enjoyed it. The the very last thing that I would like to offer is that uh, I hope, you know, whether you enjoyed it or not, that I've inspired some people to maybe uh, be okay with a little bit of in- embarrassment and really digging yeah. down there and getting getting kind of real with yourself. Yeah. Um, because you know none of us are very cool at the end of the day. Of yeah. Like we all have our stuff. And I think that uh, this show is in particularly, uh, that's what's interesting about it to me. Exactly. Um, And I hope that uh, I can sort of pass the baton and kind of overlook whatever it is you're into now and think about what really, uh, you know, sends jolts through your brain and uh, causes an emotional reaction. Yeah. You know, whatever it is. thanks very much yeah man I really appreciate you coming on uh, as a friend as a as a host as a just general curiosity I appreciate you coming on picking the songs that you did and sharing what you did so until next time this was uh, Memory Tracks thanks so much for listening